0: And we're spending the next few minutes of WGTD's morning show talking football, and we're talking football with someone whose name embodies football in so many ways, Lombardi, Michael Lombardi, whose career in uh, in football uh, spans several different capacities, having worked for decades in the NFL uh, for the Patriots, the 49ers, the Raiders, the Browns, and... Uh, He has uh, enjoyed the joys of a Super Bowl and uh, has written extensively on the game that he loves so much, most recently in a brand new book called Football Done Right, Setting the Record Straight on the Coaches, Players, and History of the NFL, in which Michael Lombardi seeks to assess, sometimes in new and fresh ways, uh, who the greatest coaches have been, who the greatest players have been, and those who have really made the most lasting and significant difference in this game. Uh, It's a terrific book. It is published by uh, Running Press. And Michael Lombardi, we welcome you to The Morning Show.
1: Thank you so much. It's good to be here. Uh, It's always good to be in Kenosha. we We should have this chat over at Frank's Diner. That would have been awesome, right?
0: Is that one of your favorite haunts?
1: Uh, yeah, I'm not going through Kenosha without stopping by there. I'm a big diner guy, and, uh, you know, I get that garbage
0: plate. I'm a fat guy. I like that. <laughs> Very good. And I know at least once upon a time, almost always when you went to uh, Frank's Diner in the morning, WGTD would be playing over the speakers, and in many cases, spirited discussions about whatever was on NPR would be uh, discussed there at the counter. So thank you for uh, being my guest today. Uh, can we just briefly put to rest the matter of your last Last name and uh, yes, here <laughs> in Packer country.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, look, look I I was born in '59, the year he went to the Packers, and so I saw this guy on television that looked like he belonged at every one of my family dinners, and uh, I, I idolized him, and I wanted to be just like him, and so he was my motivating factor. But there's no relation but he played an instrumental part in my life in setting the direction that I wanted to go uh because of what I saw him and what I learned about him and uh, all those things so you know even though we are not related uh, I feel a kindred spirit to him
0: very good i really appreciate the fact that uh your experience in the NFL uh has been in uh so many different capacities uh, as a scout, as an executive, uh, as a coach. Do you have a first love among all of the things that you have done in this game that you obviously love so much?
1: You know, I love the art of team building. I love the idea of putting something together. I love that element, and I love being able to uh, work with Coach Belichick or the great people that I was fortunate enough to work with. And uh, be able to um, to contribute, you know, towards a winning enterprise. I think that's always been the greatest thing ever. Whatever the role is, if I can do that, I'm really happy. And I've been blessed over my career to work for some incredibly, incredibly talented people. And every book that I've written has been really a tribute to them, uh, what I've learned from them, not necessarily what I know.
0: Well, of course, over the years, thousands, if not millions of books have been written about football and, uh, and even about specifically the NFL, thousands if not millions of books have been written over the years, and I've read many of them, I don't think I've ever read a book that was exactly like this book that you've just written, Football Done Right, although it explores many of the, the, the same themes that previous books uh, have, have explored, but in a little different way. Explain what you set about to do uh, in your most recent book.
1: You know, I wanted to tell a story that I didn't think had been told. I wanted to take it from my background as a personnel man and try to explain some of the history through those eyes. You know, we can only tell stories through our experiences. If we try to tell them through someone else's, they end up not being authentic, and people will not gravitate towards them. You know, as Lombardi motivated me to chase a dream, Bruce Springsteen motivated me to follow that dream and tell a story. And, you know, and that's because I grew up here in this little little beach town called Ocean City. And I listened to this guy tell me to go Born to Run, and I visualized myself in most of his songs. And I think the story that I try to tell in this book is through my eyes, through my experiences, and try to educate the fans of all the things that I've learned and put them in perspective. I also think, too, We as fans and media tend to believe things are easier than they really are. And I don't think some of the coaches have gotten enough credit for how hard it is to win regular season games in the NFL, how hard it is to win a Super Bowl, how hard it is to get to a Super Bowl. And I wanted to try to let the fans know what that's all about and how situations oftentimes matter when it comes to coaching.
0: I want to talk through the first chapter of the book, which is so interesting, called The White Oaks. But before we get to the substance of that chapter, I want to give you a chance to expand on a really great point that you make at the outset of that chapter when you essentially are talking about the vast difference between what the typical NFL coach did once upon a time. I mean, back in the days of. Coaches like uh, George Hallis for the Chicago Bears, for instance, what those coaches did during games versus what the typical coach does now during games. It's a really interesting distinction that I'd never stop to think about.
1: Well, you know, we've become chess on grass today, and because of the technology, even back then, I mean, Paul Brown, we owe a great debt of of service to him because of his ability to professionalize the coaching industry, to make people understand that you are not a coach, you're a teacher, and how do you teach a craft? How do you best communicate to your students using different ways? And so there was a time where the guy stood on the sideline and just yelled, But there also became a time where the game ran through the sideline and the sideline was used to help. And that is when coaching the profession took off. And all of a sudden it became a strategy sport. It no longer was a brute force sport. It became a strategy sport. And as the rules changed and as we got the ability to tape film and study what we just did, it expanded that strategy and it created different ways to play the game and participate in the game. And it became chess as we have 11 pieces to move on the board and the opponent has 11 pieces to move on the board and pieces can only move in so many ways. And you have to figure out what's the best way to create checkmate.
0: Hmm. We're speaking with Michael Lombardi about his newest book called football done right in chapter one called the white Oaks. You give a very special place of honor to five coaches so first of all explain this intriguing title of the chapter and what these five uh, immortal coaches have done to earn their place in this opening chapter of your book
1: Well they still they're still earning it. the white oak is the symbol of hope and it has the longest uh, roots of any tree and it expands itself forever and I think these five gentlemen, uh, are the people that have expanded the game of the coaching profession with its incredible roots and, and it has affected everyone. And we would not have football today without the combination of these five gentlemen and how they worked and what they did. And this, these may not be the greatest coaches of all time, but they were the most influential coaches of all time in terms of understanding the game and taking the profession from a whistleblower to a strategist and Earl Blake up at Dartmouth originally, because the college game during the forties and fifties was much more popular than the pro game. And then you go into Sid Gilman with this expansion of the passing game, understanding the belief that you have to throw the ball to score points. And then the great Paul Brown and Clark Shaughnessy, who's not in the hall of fame, uh, but is in the college hall of fame, but, you know, we would not have the position of quarterback if it wasn't for Clark Shaughnessy. He took the wing, he took the single wing formation and turned it into where the quarterback had a prominent role in the passing game and made him made the position a quarterback. And Joe Burrow. Who just signed a $55 million a year contract owes a lot of debt and gratitude towards Clark Shaughnessy for doing that. And then of course, Paul Brown and Bill Walsh, both gentlemen, Paul Brown to me was the Bill Gates of the coaching profession. He developed the infrastructure. He developed the operating system to then allow other coaches to develop their craft through his, through his uh, ingenuity and his curiosity to teach and then that affected coach Walsh with the, with the Cincinnati Bengals and on to the 49ers. So the white oak to me was symbolic of how those roots are long and deep.
0: Right. And I appreciate that you you take the time for instance in the case of Sid Gilman to uh as sort of an aside to tell us about his great mentor, Francis Schmidt, a name that yes. uh, probably means very little to uh, even m- most fervent uh, football fans, but he is part of the story of of Sid Gilman, and so I appreciate uh, the, the care with which you, you, you honor these five uh, important coaches. In chapter two, titled Situations Matter, you really help us understand more profoundly something that on a very shallow level We already understand, which is that a great coach can be in a bad situation that in a sense prevents them from showing their their true greatness. And I think a lot of people writing a book about football would just, in a sense, be content to leave it at that. You obviously want us to think about this reality more than we typically do. Why? Why do you think this is worth the time you take in your book?
1: Because I have lived through good and bad. It's only through the bad that you really understand what the good looks like. When I entered the National Football League in 1984, I thought every organization was like the 49ers and Eddie DeBarlow and Bill Walsh. And what Walsh told me the very first six months on the job in my first NFL draft, he says, we're only competing against eight teams. Now, the NFL was filled with eight with 28 teams at that time. And I, I didn't quite understand what he meant, but what he meant was there were only 18s organizationally, culturally that were trying to win. There were civil wars within every organization, conflict that created a lot of problems. And what I tried to explain to the fans in the book is the problems, why some great coaches don't reach their full potential because of situations and, 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 the surrounding support system that's in place. And I think we don't put enough of that into it. You have to understand, you know, Bill Belichick in Cleveland, you know, people think, well, he was not a very good coach in Cleveland. I hear that all the time. He was a great coach in Cleveland. I wrote a book. I wrote a book about him for the Los- for the St. Louis Rams and suggested that they hire him, but the Rams couldn't get past that. They thought he was a bad coach. And now he's got six Super Bowls to his trophy case. And I think that's what I try to take a look at, understanding that, that it's more than just one man. It's an organization, and it takes a complete organization focus to be able to help that coach win, no matter how great that coach is.
0: Mm -hmm. You have a, a chapter in which you lay out your choices for the top 10 coaches in NFL history, and they are a great lineup and all 10 belong there. But you uh, do such a great job of kind of illuminating their, their, their successes and help us understand what, what is really at the heart of their greatness. And we'll leave it to our listeners to explore that. In chapter five, this is a bit of a surprise, uh, although I'm so glad this, this chapter is here. But I think a lot of people, especially having read the book, chapters 1 through 4, will be surprised to see chapter 5 uh, titled Television, in which you take <laughs> the time to honor uh, three men who really played a big role in the expansion of the NFL on television, uh, namely Howard Cosell, Brent Musburger, and, and John Madden. Uh, why did you want... To honor these three men, why does their contribution belong with everything else that is in this book?
1: Because as I started this conversation with Mike is that i uh, I seen this through my eyes. And as a kid in 1971, I was 12 years old. And Howard Cosell came on my little TV and showed me highlights that I'd never seen before. And that was impactful to me. He, He allowed me to see my favorite team. And know what uniforms they were actually wearing. And he made an unbelievable impression on me. And then the NFL today, it's 1230 on Sunday morning. I would get goosebumps when I would hear that music and just feel like, oh, my gosh, I'm getting closer to this game I love so much. Madden was easy to write about because most people know Madden. But I don't think many people knew what Brett Musburger did for the sport, what Jimmy the Greek did, unfortunately, what he did what he did to hurt his career at the end. But what Musburger did in terms of bringing that betting and the people that wanted to know about this game into the living room, and then Cosell, I mean, Cosell was a monumental figure in the sport, and he helped advance the franchise values to, you know, the they say the Cowboys are worth $9 billion. Uh, I think Howard, Brent, and Jimmy had a lot to do with that, along with John Madden. We can't dismiss that. And as a child of history, we know for all our attempts to end communism, it was the power of television that did. People saw other people living a different way. They didn't want to live their way. That wall came down. And so I think television plays such an important part of influencing our lives and increasing the value. So I wanted to tell that story. And I I actually, to me, it was one of my favorite chapters to
0: write. Mm, I believe it. And at the end, you say over 113 million people watched uh, the Super Bowl in 2023, but to give credit to just the teams, the players, the coaches, or even the advertisers would be short-sighted. This monumental growth in viewership really stemmed from the groundwork laid decades prior by Cosell, Musburger, and Madden. You go on in chapters six and seven to explore what's kind of uh, behind the scenes stuff that uh, that even a lot of of, of fervent Football fans don't take the time to fully appreciate, namely the significance of the draft and the significance of trades. And I guess this circles back to what you said was, in many respects, your first love when it comes to being in the world of football, that task of building a great team.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and it was, you know, as a kid growing up here, I used to play Stratomatic Baseball with my two friends, Danny Reynolds and Michael Semino. And even though it was baseball, we could build teams. You know, we would throw all the cards into a shoebox and have our own draft. And we became draft nicks for a baseball game. And we would make trades. So we started making trades. And I fell in love with that, Mike. I just loved that. I couldn't get enough of it. We played Stratomatic Baseball. From eight in the morning until four in the morning, my mother's dining room table got worn out. She was so mad at us for sitting around that table all summer long. And that was something that I wanted to talk about. How were trades made? I mean, Packer fans can remember when – probably not a lot of them still were here, but when they made the John Hadel trade, the one, the two, and the three, the Lawrence Welk deal, you know, and Dan Devine abandoned the team after he made that trade. It was a horrendous trade, but it was a sense of desperation. And we can be critical of the trade, which we should be, but we have to understand what motivated the trade. I think that's what we don't always talk about. What was the motivating factor in the trade? Exactly. And I wanted to explain what, why people make trades like that. You mm-hmm. know, what, 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 Not everybody is assumed to be stupid. You know, there's a sense of – Springsteen has a great line in one of his songs. He says, sometimes I can't tell my courage from my desperation. And I think trading, sometimes people think they're being courageous when, in fact, they're being desperate. And I wanted to lay out the desperation.
0: mm I think you do a great job of that. And then we should say, the book ends in very lively fashion with what you list as the top 100 NFL players of all time. And it's a great list, and you take time to explain the greatness and each of every one of these uh, players. It's a wonderful book, start to finish, Football Done Right, Setting the Record Straight on the Coaches, Players, and History of the NFL, written by Michael Lombardi, published by Running Press. Mr. Lombardi, what a great pleasure to read your book and to be able to talk with you about it today on The Morning Show. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. What a great interview. I really appreciate your great questions and appreciate you having me. Hmm.